welcome to this week's episode of Paranormally Speaking. I am your host, Neil Parks. This week, I will be diving into the history, the making, and the mystery of Poltergeist, the original film, Poltergeist, not the remake. Although the remake was decent on its own, nothing will replace the original. I will be talking about how the cast and crew became cursed during and after the making of the film. The strange, the unusual, uh, the horrible. Not only was it a, I call it a family-friendly horror film, honestly. It's a great way to start your kids off on the right foot with paranormal horror. Because it completely predates Sinister and the Conjuring series and Insidious. Just a fabulous family-friendly horror film. Kind of like Gremlins. That's what I'm going to be doing this week and more. So buckle up and enjoy the ride as I take you to our first commercial break. Insider Access. Get it all. Introducing the Sirius XM Platinum VIP Plan. Our newest, most exclusive plan. Listen in two cars, plus stream anywhere with two app logins. Access a massive, exclusive library of live concert video and audio recordings through nugs.net. Have opportunities to experience live and virtual Sirius XM events, including VIP-only exclusives. Get all your questions answered by a dedicated VIP customer care team. Plus, get all the entertainment we've got. It's all included with your Platinum VIP subscription. Be a VIP. Call 844-711-8800 to learn more. Offer detail supply. One login for activated vehicle. Not available in Canada. You are listening to Paranormally Speaking and, of course, the musical accompaniment of Metallica, Master of Puppets, on LP. Yes, I'm playing a record as part of my background ambiance. And as I mentioned earlier, what I'm discussing today is what really happened during the making of Poltergeist. It's been an age-old question. Well, Poltergeist still haunts us even after 40 plus years. The movie about a family menaced by malevolent spirits and their cookie cutter suburban home plays a like a list of collective nightmares. The cackling clown doll that comes to life, the closet that's actually a portal to another world, the monstrous tree that rips through a bedroom window, and the angelic little girl pressing her hands against whispering static-filled television screen calling out to her slumbering household. They're here. Then there is the swimming pool, an open pit. The family is just beginning to excavate in their backyard. This is where the source of ghostly rage is finally revealed during the stormy climax, as the bodies of those who were buried beneath the property when it was a graveyard rise up around the mother, played by Joe Beth Williams, 
who has slipped and fallen into the murky runoff. This was one of the excuses my parents always used as to why we did not need a pool. Long after filming the sequence, the actor learned an unsettling truth. I always assumed, she said, that the skeletons were made by the prop department, Williams tells Vanity Fair. A few years later, I ran into one of the special effects guys and I said, you guys making all those skeletons, that must have been really amazing to do. He said, oh, we didn't make them. Those were real. I said, what? He said, yeah, they were real, real skeletons. Even now, her voice catches a little when she tells the story. I don't know where they were from or brought in by, but that really grossed me out, she says. I'm glad that I didn't know that then because I would have been really screaming a lot uncontrollably for real. To commemorate this four-decade anniversary of Poltergeist, it has been restored and released for the first time in 4K Ultra HD. And Williams and Craig T. Nelson, who starred as the besieged parents, agreed to exclusives, new interviews to revisit the memories, controversies, tragedies, and legacies of one of the most popular scary movies of all time. Both Williams and Nelson were still relative newcomers back in 1982. When the film was released, Williams had been on a soap opera called Guiding Light and appeared in a handful of movies, among them Kramer vs. Kramer and Stir Crazy, which also featured Nelson in a very small role. He had been a Groundlings performer and comedy writer with supporting turns in And Justice for All and Private Benjamin. Poltergeist was an altogether different entity for both of them. <laughs> entity, nice play on words. A big-budget, scary crowd-pleaser packed with state-of-the-art stunts and visual effects. It was all overseen by the king of cinema, Steven Spielberg, also early in his career, but already recognized as a trailblazer. At the time, it was huge, Nelson recalls. At MGM, we had three or four different stages, and the pole you had these enormous sets, you and this kind of story that may or may not make sense depending on how they did it. The authorship question being Poltergeist was credited to Texas Chainsaw Massacre director Tobe Hooper. But by now it's common knowledge that Spielberg was, so to speak, a ghost director. It was so exciting to work on a movie that Spielberg was involved in and he was very, very actively involved, Williams says. I mean, it was his story, idea, and he helped write it. He said, oh, we didn't make them. Those were real, I said. Back to the skeletons, what? He said, yeah, they were real skeletons. I can't get that out of my mind. Initially, Spielberg wanted Stephen King to co-write the Poltergeist screenplay, but the author didn't respond. He was probably hopped up on coke at that time because he was a major cokehead in the late 70s, early 80s. King has said he was on a ship going across the Atlantic at the time when the offer came in and didn't get the message. Hooper also had King Bonafides having directed and acclaimed TV miniseries based on the vampire novel Salem's Lot. 
Emma Spielberg working simultaneously on E.T., the extraterrestrial, he handed over the director's title to Poltergeist to Hooper. Spielberg would still oversee the film as a producer, but the stars had met. It was a collaboration between the two filmmakers. That's what made the magic. He was taking more of a hands-on approach, Nielsen said of Spielberg. I'm sorry, Nelson. That's Craig T. Nelson, not Craig T. Nielsen. But it was always from a very creative collaboration. There was no tension on the set in that regard. It was determined how you were going to shoot things that had never been done before. When Poltergeist debuted, it just a week before E.T., Spielberg published a letter to Hooper and The Hollywood Reporter to publicly credit him for his work, thanking him for allowing a unique creative relationship and for his openness. Still the notion that it was more of a Spielberg film than a Hooper has persisted all this time. Not only does the finished movie feel like a classic emblem picture due in part to Spielberg's longtime editor Michael Kahn cutting it together, but Hooper never made another film that had the same tone, even though he the pair would collaborate again in 1987, an episode of the TV series Amazing Stories, and the 2002 Alien Saga Taken. Hooper died in 2017 at the age of 74. I think, in his heart of hearts, he would have loved to have directed it. Williams said of Spielberg, he was always there, and Tobe was not as experienced as Steven Spielberg was. He very much listened to Steven's ideas about things because it was Steven's movie after all, really. And I'm not sure that there were times when it drove Tobe crazy to have Spielberg so actively involved, but he never let on. They were both kind of there on the set. Tobe would give directions. Sometimes Spielberg would add to that or give other directions. But as she, as uh, Craig T. Nelson says, I think it's fair to say that it was sort of a combo of the two of them because certainly Stephen was actively involved. Now on to the Deadpool. Not from Marvel Deadpool, but Williams played Diane Freeling, a stay-at-home mom who holds everything together. Even in the best of times, the children included Moody High Schooler Dana, Dominique Dune, Scrappy little boy Robbie, Oliver Robbins, and sweetest pie preschooler Carol Ann, Heather O'Rourke. Nelson was the tough but tender man of the house, a real estate agent whose company built their home as well as the other homes in the neighborhood. It's implied that's why the spirits of those buried on the grounds torment the Freelings, as Nelson's character shouts at his boss in the final scene, You son of a bitch! You left the bodies! You only moved the headstones! Love that line. I hadn't read that many movie scripts, William says now. I love the story. I love the family connection. And when it came to descriptions of the effects, that kind of stuff, I just skimmed over that. There was this one line that says, Diane falls into muddy swimming pool with skeletons, and I just passed over that. Didn't even notice it. Then one day, she found herself in an MGM soundstage, doused with rain, soaked with mud, and tangled up with actual human skeletons. Decades before, at the same studio, Esther Williams epitomized glamour 
as the graceful beauty who led teams of synchronized swimmers in kaleidoscopic water dances. Joe Beth Williams, no relation, thought that of that, and she slid and slipped repeatedly into the muck. It was awful. First of all, they made the mud with peat, and peat begins to really stick and smell bad after a day. It begins to smell like dog poop. And so it was really icky to be in, she says. I ended up in the pool. Oh, yeah, Nelson adds. There were cadavers floating in there and strange things, amoebas. I mean, stuff had fallen in there off of these dead bodies. I had been uh, had to scream and I, I'd think, oh God, I don't want to get in this water and any of it in my mouth. I'm sure I'll get a terrible disease, William says. Don't go into the light or the giant's fa or the giant fans. Neither Williams nor Nelson spoke about the eerie feelings of supernatural happenings on the set. They were more unsettled by the tangible dangers, like the array of electricity that rimmed the pool full of corpses. It was, of course, surrounded by lights and surrounded by giant fans called ritters, which are about 16 feet in diameter, Williams says. When I first had to get into the pool, I was very scared because I'm nervous about electricity and water. And I just had this image of one of those fans or the lights falling into it and me being electrocuted and dying. I told Stephen that I was really scared to do it. And he said, I'll tell you what, I'll get in with you. And he put on his waders and he said, first of all, it's all grounded. So it couldn't electrocute you. And it did manage to calm her down. So she could focus on freaking out about supernatural terrors instead of being electrocuted. She stood in that water for the first few takes that I did, and he stood next to me, William says. And I thought that it was very sweet of him. Please hold for an important message from one of my sponsors. Available to order now, my first audiobook, Neil Parks presents Truly Terrifying Tales, narrated by me. It's ready to order and download on bandcamp.com. My other books, of course, are always available to order on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Lulu.com. You can also order t-shirts that I designed that I normally sell at conventions, festivals, lectures, and my book signings. I always have the 9-inch tall 3D printed Bigfoot silhouettes available, and last spring my first children's book was released. It was written by my good friend and fellow author R.L. Walker. I illustrated this book and it was a major shift in gears for me, considering that my writing and art style has always been dark and scary. To order any of what I just mentioned, you can also go to my email, which is parksparanormal at gmail.com. That is parksparanormal at gmail.com. Standing by. Really informative commercial break. I'm glad that we had that because I needed to get a drink of water. 
I was rather parched and on with the show. Now, as far as Craig T. Nelson, his primary worry was a scene in which he had to rescue their son from a knotted old tree that comes to life and tries to swallow him. It was terrible. They made this tree and they put thorns in it. It was crazy, he said. It was a rubber tree, but at the same time, you are climbing up there and you're going, why? Did the tree really need to have thorns in it? I mean, couldn't you have done it with nice little pillow things when you crawl up and then they look like thorns? He remembers asking a lot of strange questions on the Poltergeist set, like during a scene in which a fresh steak appears suddenly to be rotten. I remember asking the prop guys a lot of questions. Where did you get those maggots? Where do you order maggots from? Is that something that is on your truck all the time? And then there's the parents' secret stash. Diane and Steve Freeling were a modern couple despite living what now looks like a retro traditional life. Ozzy and Harriet of the early 80s, but less self-assured. Uh, they were parents with passions and insecurities, and Poltergeist devotes much of the first act to making the family relatable before turning their lives upside down, and sometimes literally upside down. You're going from that kind of sublime, upper-middle-class living, having a family that's fairly stable, raised in an area that's nice, to the horror that you're going to experience later on, Nelson said. And that movie, Steve and Diane are still in love, respectful but playful with one another, and secretly both smoke marijuana together in their bedroom after the children are tucked in. A scene that has scandalized generations of kid viewers who had no idea moms and dads did such things. A lot of that bedroom playfulness was improvised. We rolled up those joints of oregano and tried to get them lit and puff away. Craig was a comedy writer at one time. In fact, I think he did stand up too early in those days, but he's very funny. And so Tobe and Stephen would just let us run with things, Williams says. One of her favorite bits was a shirtless Nelson pooching out his belly and then sucking it back in as he stands before a full-length mirror saying before, after, before, after. Craig got into that whole thing, doing that with his stomach, which, of course, had me in genuine hysterics, Williams says. And I think he really began to feel like we were stoned after a while. We weren't, by the way, she quickly adds. Nelson explains that not-so-special effect, how they rolled up the joints of oregano. For those keeping score, the skeletons were real, but the weed was not. The weird neighbor interaction. Williams acknowledged that the Freelings getting high on their own supply could be interrupted as an explanation for one of Poltergeist's more inexplicably offbeat moments. It happens early in the film, when the Freelings can no longer deny something supernatural is happening in their home and visit their befuddled neighbor to ask if anything similar has occurred there. Steve and Diane snicker and giggle throughout the exchange, which raises the question, did they partake to calm their nerves before going next door? No, I think it was just the absurdity of what we were going through because what we were saying was basically insane, Williams says, before changing course. And I think, yes, maybe we were a little stoned. I don't know. We didn't plan that out, but it could have easily been read that way. 
She says their stifled laughter was actually real. They couldn't stop laughing after Spielberg told them to pantomime that bugs were pestering them during the nighttime scene, Stephen said. Well, there are probably some mosquitoes. So then we get into slapping the mosquitoes, and we were genuinely hysterical, William said. Now, the upside down of being upside down is one of the most physically demanding scenes for Williams was when her character is thrown up against the ceiling of their bedroom and tossed around by invisible forces. To accomplish this, a replica of the Freeling bedroom was built on a massive gimbal, and she rolled along the walls and ceiling-like in a sock and an empty clothes dryer. The camera and its operator were strapped to the floor and would be shooting upside down while gravity played havoc with the actor. That created the illusion that she was actually weightless. But it was punishing to shoot. Let's just say the charm wore off after about 12 takes, Williams says. I had to be on a 360-degree turn that was turning on the set at the same time, which I had never even heard of. And when they said, you're going to just ride this thing and slide along the ceiling, I went, okay, I see. What they didn't say was that I would be doing 50 takes of it, and by the end, my elbows and knees were bleeding, she recalls. My elbows and knees were bleeding. That's really dedication to your craft. The scene happens at a point when her character is most relaxed, most vulnerable. She had just taken a soothing bath and is wearing a little more than a baggy sleeping t-shirt. So there was no way to hide padding. And the poor cameraman who had to ride the thing like a Ferris wheel, she adds, he was strapped in and several times he had to get off and go throw up because it was literally making him physically sick. But he carried on. And when I got off a few takes, I said, Stephen, I'm bleeding. My elbows and knees are bleeding. And he said, that's all right. We can just wipe off the blood. It'll never show. And I said, oh, I feel much better now. Thank you. I had to laugh. The lost children, although this didn't happen during the making of Poltergeist, it's difficult to watch the movie now without thinking of the untimely deaths of two of the actors who played the Freeling children. Dominique Dune, who was 22, was killed by her ex-boyfriend in the fall of 1982, just a few months after the film's debut. And Heather O'Rourke, who was five during the making of Poltergeist, died unexpectedly in 1988 at the age of 12 from intestinal disorder. Heather was just a sweetheart and shy and beautiful. She was just this wonderful little girl. And she was perfect for the role, perfect for just who she was and her innocence. Nelson says, Dominic was basically a kid who was doing a big movie and had a life of her own. Everybody in reality just had a good time and we felt like a real family. Especially into Poltergeist too. She was just so sweet and easy to work with and just took my hand the first day and held on to me for the rest of the time, William says of O'Rourke. And if I would cry, she would cry. If I would scream, she would scream. Where's this little five-year-old girl who has this inane empathy? She was truly a gifted little actress, William says. The play acting she and Nelson did together often extended to the young actors, 
they would have us improvise with the kids at the table when we were having a family scene. She says before they'd start rolling, the four of us or five of us, whoever was there, would all improvise with each other. And Craig and I would get the kids involved in it. By the time they rolled the camera, we were very comfortable with each other and playful and having fun, which was one of the things that I really loved about the way the film worked. Dominic was a doll, and she was always complaining about the fact that she was having to play 16 when she was really 21, Williams added. It just felt silly to her. And then she did the scene where she had the big hickey on her neck, <clears throat> the final scene, when she comes home from a date and sees her home being destroyed. We all thought that was hilarious, that it, I think was Stephen's idea. And she was just delightful, a delightful young woman. We were all just stunned when she was killed. That was really a horrifying thing to go through. In 1983, Dunn's killer, John Sweeney, was acquitted of second-degree murder and convicted on the lesser charge of voluntary manslaughter, which Dunn's family considered an affront. Her father, frequent Vanity Fair contributor Dominic Dunn, became a champion for victims' rights and chronicled her killer's trial for the magazine. O'Rourke went on to appear in Poltergeist 2 in 1986 and had already shot Poltergeist 3 in 1987 before her sudden illness and death. The third movie was released posthumously. Her mother, Kathleen O'Rourke Peel, later sued her daughter's doctors, saying they had misdiagnosed the birth defect of her severe bowel obstruction as Crohn's disease before her death. The lawsuit was settled out of court. I think because these two were both so young, it was so shocking, William says now, of Don and O'Rourke. Heather's loss was just staggering, and her mother, Kathy, called me actually right after we all got the news, and she was at a loss. William says of O'Rourke's family, it was grappling with how they could be unaware that she had such a life-threatening medical condition. It brought them back to something Williams had said previously about what she didn't, I've got this really bad pain, she would always say, or, or my tummy hurts a little or something, she adds. So they didn't know until it was too late, and that was the hard part. We all noticed something was wrong. She was such a trooper because we did that whole scene with where we were supposed to have fallen through the ceiling, and we were covered in goop and it was freezing, and we were incredibly cold. She did not complain once, and she was dealing with all of that discomfort and pain. Please hold for an important message from one of my sponsors. Experience Columbus's newest and most entertaining haunted attraction, Carnage Haunted House. Carnage Haunted House and their monsters return to an all-new indoor 60,000-square-foot location at 3770 Refugee Road, home of intense terror that's guaranteed to scare. Featuring the bayou, the entity, and more, experience the thrill of two of Columbus's most immersive attractions and terrifying all-indoor haunts under one roof. For ticket prices and hours of operation, visit them on Facebook or check out Carnage the Poltergeist Curse, Inside the Mysterious Cast, Deaths, and Oddities on Set. Let's take a look at the Poltergeist Curse and reveal all of the sus suspect deaths surrounding the film series. When you mix a daughter who communicates with spirits living inside a TV set 
A backyard that becomes a swimming pool of muddy skeletons, a wolf-beast demon that lives in a closet, and Steven Spielberg's genius, you get the perfect formula for a blockbuster. Total scariness. Released in 1982, the original Poltergeist, directed by Tobe Hooper and produced by Spielberg, was an instant success and is considered to be a masterpiece of American horror cinema. The film focuses on the Freelings, a middle-class family led by a youthful, dashing Craig T. Nelson, whose life is upturned when a number of paranormal and vicious events occur in their California home, and their daughter, Carol Ann, is abducted through her bedroom closet by a group of ghosts who are under the control of a monster demon called the Beast. After learning that their house sits atop a Native American burial ground, the Freelings spend their time attempting to retrieve Carol Ann and all the while stay sane as they get smacked around, terrorized, and ultimately goobered up on in a bathtub. With Poltergeist's success came a creepy mystique that the classic film is shrouded in real-life tragedies that some interpret as a curse. Four cast members died during and soon after the filming of the series. The majority of the fuel for the alleged curse stems from the deaths of multiple cast members. In total, four cast members died during and soon after the filming of the series. Two of these tragic deaths were highly unexpected and puzzling, leading many fans to speculate that the Trillies trilogy's eerie implications. Carol Ann Freeling, the young focal point of the series, was played by Heather O'Rourke, only six years old when the first Poltergeist film was released. O'Rourke captivated audiences with her stark blonde hair and her doll-like appearance and big inquisitive eyes. Sadly, however, she was misdiagnosed with Crohn's disease in 1987. The following year, O'Rourke fell ill again and her symptoms were casually attributed to a flu. A day later, she collapsed and suffered a cardiac arrest. After being airlifted to a children's hospital in San Diego, O'Rourke died during an operation to correct a bowel obstruction and was later believed that she had been suffering from a congenital intestinal abnormality. Dominique Dune. Dominique Dune, who played the original older sister, Dana Freeling, met an equally tragic and unforeseen fate. In 1982, Dune separated from her partner, John Sweeney. In November of that year, he showed up at Dune's house, pleading for her to take him back. When she refused... Sweeney grabbed Dune's neck, choked her until she was unconscious, and left her to die in her Hollywood Holmes driveway. Sweeney was sentenced to six and a half years in prison, but released after three years and seven months. Julianne Beck and Will Sampson. The other two cast member deaths, while unfortunate, were not as unpredictable or mysterious. The evil preacher Cain from Poltergeist 2 was played by Julian Beck. 
1983, Beck had been diagnosed with stomach cancer, which took his life soon after he finished work on the second installment of the series. The same film was met with further tragedy after Will Sampson, who played Taylor, the Native American shaman, died after undergoing a heart-lung transplant, which had a very slim survival rate. Now, other strange things that happened on the set, cast deaths were not the only agents of the curses proliferation or as other peculiar and creepy legends surround the film franchise. Joe Beth Williams, who played mom, Diana Freeling, in the first two films claimed that director Spielberg insisted on using actual human skeletons as props in an attempt to save money at the time they were cheaper than plastic skeletons. Williams' claim has never been verified, but it persists to this day and the lore surrounding the film's curse. Finally, in an effort to further creep out everyone's involvement, Samson, the real-life medicine man who passed away due to circumstances mentioned earlier, performed an authentic exorcism after shooting wrapped up one night. One can only imagine how this made the other cast members feel. Now playing one of the biggest podcasts of the week on the free iHeartRadio app. Now, number one for podcasting. The years after. Despite those tragic losses, Poltergeist remains an enduring testament to the work of all involved. Not only was it a box office hit, but kids of the 80s remember it playing nearly nonstop on HBO. It's a movie generations have watched over and over again and can often quote verbatim. Almost everyone has a poltergeist memory. Watching it on TV, watching it at a sleepover, watching it in between your fingers covering your eyes. Some parents denounced it as too frightening at the time, but kids loved it. I must have seen it a hundred times before I even became a 20-something, and I'm 47 now. Maybe they loved it more because of that. I got so much fan mail from children, and I have several people who are now my friends, who are obviously younger than I am, who said, you were the mom that I always wanted. You were super mom to me because you went into the unknown to save your kid, Williams says. I got all this fan mail, she continues, from kids all over the world saying, you're such a great mommy because my character fought for her child. Years later, she also became one of those people who were eager to pass Poltergeist onto her own children when they were growing up in the 90s and early 2000s. When it came out and parents were saying, oh, our kids are so scared and it's too scary for kids. There was all this sort of hoopla. So I said to my kids, I did this movie, Poltergeist. You're going to hear about it, but I think you're a little young to see it, Williams says. So finally, when they were maybe 10 and 13, I said, okay, I think it's okay for you guys to see it now. And they both said, oh, mom, we watched that at our friend's house years ago. They said it wasn't that scary. The legacy of Poltergeist and the decades-long love for it stands as kind of vindication for Williams' satisfaction for the banged-up elbows and the rotating bedroom 
and her nauseating plunge into the dreaded pool of real cadavers. She remembers taking a break during that sequence, being pulled out at lunchtime and hosed down, literally hosed down and put back in the back of a pickup truck so they could be driven back to their trailers on the MGM lot. I turned to Craig and said, so this is the glamorous showbiz life that I've always heard about. And that's pretty much summed it up, William says. We kept looking at each other going, do you think this is, will just show and drive-ins for the rest of our lives? Or do you think it'll actually be a movie anyone will want to see, remember, or even care about? And we didn't even know what kind of a lasting effect it would have. That's all I got for this week. I'm Neil Parks, your host for Paranormally Speaking. I hope you enjoyed this episode and it offered some insight into the amazing film that is Poltergeist. Just in time for Halloween. So have a great weekend. Thank you for listening. And I will catch you next time on Paranormally Speaking. Thank you. Just like-